Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Everything, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, there's not one thing that happens. There's not one non-Christian crop that grows according to Christ that God was not involved in that. He's not only the creator, he is the sustainer of life. And that is a reality that we need to come to grips with. And it's a humbling reality. It strips me of all my pride and it makes me realize I am nothing without God. In John chapter 15, verse 5, Jesus says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares encourages us to take this verse literally as we come to terms with the fact that we are nothing without God. Everything we have and are is from Him. We're continuing our series called Lessons on Grace, and we've reached 2 Samuel chapter 7 in our study. This passage helps us understand our dependence on God and why this is a good thing. Well, let's get started. Many things in life just aren't fair. Would you agree with that? A lot of things in life just don't seem to be fair. It's not fair. A lot of things in our personal lives, I mean, 10, 12, 15 things a week we can look at, whether in our workplace, in our family, or in society in general, they just don't seem to be fair, and they're not fair. It's just not fair. A lot of inequities in life. What I'd like to do is to spend a little bit of time focusing on what is got to be the most inequitable thing about your life, the most unfair thing. That is, if you're a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a part of God's family, there is nothing more unfair, there is nothing more inequitable than your relationship with God. God wanted to get that point across, and time and time again in the Bible, He does get it across in a powerful and poignant way. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, I think, was losing sight of this fact. And so God clarified it in what was, in the Hebrew text, the second longest personal revelation of God recorded in the Bible, where God comes down and speaks in first-person terms about some problems he's got with David's plans. And it's all about the inequity that should exist in the mind of every person who calls themselves a child of God. Look at it with me, if you would, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God teaches Dave a big lesson that he would never forget. Look at it, the historical context, beginning in verse number 1, it says, after the king was settled in his palace, and Yahweh had given him rest from all his enemies, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a palace of cedar, and boy, it's a nice palatial dig, and I love this house that we built, and all this work that went into it, but when I, when I look out through the window of my nice home here, I see not too far away, here in Jerusalem, the box, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence dwelling in a tent. And I just don't think that's right. And, and we need to settle the score here a little bit, Nathan. And, and God's done so much for me, and now it's payback time. I, I need to do some things for God and, and kind of make this thing even now. And so he says, uh, you know, what do you think, Nathan? Verse 3, Nathan the prophet commits a pastoral blunder when he doesn't consult God, he doesn't consult his word, he just replies in a very logical, rational, reasonable way. He says, you know what, whatever you have in mind, it sounds like a good plan, it sounds like a godly idea. Go for it, Dave. Well, the Lord wasted little time in correcting Nathan's counsel. 
He comes to Nathan that night, it says in verse number four, and he says to Nathan, verse five, go tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh says. And he asks a rhetorical question. Are you the one to build a house for me to dwell in? Hey, Dave, I haven't dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, hey, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? A couple of rhetorical questions here, a couple of devices used in God's vocabulary that basically says, Dave, you're not the guy to build me a temple. And, you know, if I really wanted one, I would ask for one. And if I wanted you to build it, I'd certainly make that clear. But don't, don't try and <laughs> even the score here. Don't try and build a house for me because of what I've done for you. And in this response from God, he reveals a very basic elemental flaw in the thinking of many people who call themselves followers of Christ. They oftentimes think that in some way they can do for God something that would in some way, perhaps partially, compensate for what God has done for them. God has no interests in you doing anything that are going to meet his needs. He needs nothing because he is in himself a self-sufficient, autonomous, self-supporting, self-loving, self-serving, self-everything. He is everything he needs. So he didn't create angels so he could have some people to sing him some songs. He didn't create people so he could have someone to love because he was lonely out there in eternity for all time. He didn't do that. He didn't need us, and he doesn't need you. What does that mean we don't serve God? There's lots of things we do in response to grace. But grace is all about God needing nothing. That's the foundation of grace. There is nothing I can give God of any real worth. One more passage, Acts 17. Turn there with me if you would. Chapter 17 to verse number 25. And he is not served by human hands. I love this phrase. As if he needed anything, he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. He ain't going to be the recipient because he's the giver. He can't, it's not a tit for tat. It's not a quid pro quo. It's not you do that for me, I do that for you. It doesn't work that way in Christian theology. Biblical teachings of God have always consisted of a God who needs nothing. And that's an important place for us to start. But secondarily, Paul brings up our second point, and that's where God goes with David in the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 7. He begins to talk about how you can't give me anything because I have everything I need, but I can sure give you a lot. I give men life and breath and everything else, Paul says. Look at it back in 2 Samuel 7. The tables turn from what God says you can't do for me to what I do for you, David. Look at it in verse number 8. He tells Nathan, now then, tell my servant David, this is what Yahweh Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be ruler over my people. By the way, that's a pretty big cultural slam. There's no lower job than being a shepherd. And as a matter of fact, even the way God puts it, you're just following the flock. I mean, you're just a, a nobody. But I took you from that. And it says, I made you the ruler over my people Israel. Look at verse number nine. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't I doing that? No, God says, I was doing that. I was giving you victory. I was giving you success. I was giving you everything. You think you're going to pay me back for that? Never. Doesn't work that way. Second thing that's important for us to note 
is not only that God needs nothing, but the most important thing about pondering that in reality in my life is that I must admit that God gives me everything. I can give him nothing because he needs nothing, but God gives me everything. How much? Paul said life and breath and everything else. That means that my blood cannot even be oxygenated with my lungs unless God is involved in the process. The deists were wrong. God did not create a world with laws and rules and then walk away from it. He is not the divine clockmaker. God is a God who is intimately and intricately involved in his creation. He says there's not one thing that takes place in the world that I'm not involved in. You don't live, you don't enjoy life, you don't smile, you don't see a sunset, your heart doesn't pump blood through your body, your synapse in your mind do not snap unless I tell them to. I am intricately involved in everything. That's why Paul says in the rest of that sermon in Acts 17, he says, in him we live and move and have our being. We don't even exist without him. Or as Colossians 1 puts it, in Christ, what does it say? In him all things hold together. All things consist because Christ is involved in his creation. And so, in a very real sense, if I understand the bigness of God, that he needs nothing, and I look at my own life and I look at the smallness of myself, I recognize my divine dependence. He is not dependent on me. I am fully dependent on him. How much? Fully dependent on him. And that would be a good thing for us to admit today, wouldn't it? David had to admit it. And it would be good for us to admit it. Everything, whether it's Christian or non-Christian, there's not one thing that happens. There's not one non-Christian crop that grows according to Christ that God was not involved in that. There's not one birth in a hospital in Southern California today that is not a gift of God. There's not one person that breathes another breath in this world that God is not there involved intricately and mysteriously in the sustaining of life. He's not only the creator, he is the sustainer of life. And that is a reality that we need to come to grips with. And it's a humbling reality. It strips me of all my pride and it makes me realize I am nothing without God. I don't exist. If God were to turn his back for just one second on the vital processes of my biological universe, Unit, I cease to exist. If he turns his back for one second on any element of my life, if he were, as the deist suggested, if he were to walk away for one second from anything in the universe, it would all collapse under its own weight because God is the creator and sustainer of all things. He gives us life and breath and everything else. In him we live and move and exist. All things consist in Christ. He holds it all together. Wow, he gives me everything? Yeah. And it'd be good for us to note how he seems to choose to bless the people he chooses to bless. I said that God kind of slams David by reminding him of his background. It was very humble. It was very lowly job. And have you noticed how God seems to make it his pattern to do that, to choose the most unlikely to bless? I mean, you got two sons. You got Esau and Jacob. Who are you going to bless there? Esau, the man's man, the hunter, the outdoors. When you got Jacob, the mama's boy, right? guy in there stirring the pot, making, you know, cookies this week. I mean, that's, that's Jacob. And God says, those two guys, I tell you, ah, I'm going to work with Jacob. But you got all these sons. They're all active. They're all doing their own thing. Then you got the little brat of the family. You know, dad's favorite. You got Joseph wearing his little funky, little fancy, frilly coat, right? <laughs> and you're thinking, who are you going to bless there, God? God says, oh, I'll take Joseph. Why does he do that? First Corinthians chapter one gives us a little hint. He does that for a specific reason. He does it according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to show us something. And if you want to turn there and look at it, it's worth looking at. Think of what you were when you were called. This is verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. We don't have all the, the magna cum laude's here of all the universities in church today here, right? We don't have all the, all the, the beauty pageant uh, winners. We're not the cream of the crop. Have you noticed that? Right? Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to end up to choose to bless them and give them insight in God's word and allow them to live life victoriously and do all these wonderful things. To do what? Well, ultimately, it, it shames the wise. God chose the weak things of the world and it ends up shaming the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? Purpose clause. Verse 29. Here's the point. So that no one may boast before him. What's that mean? That means that God's working with people like us to make it really clear to all the onlookers that it's not about us, it's about him. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's that mean? I mean, just a common pot is a fragile, ordinary thing. So that the surpassing greatness of the value may be from God and not from us. People can look at us and say it obviously about God here. It's not about you guys. God didn't look for the most moral, righteous, great people, the smartest, most influential people so that he could bless them because people might get confused. They might start to think that we can actually give something to God and he gives in return to that. No, no, no. We give nothing to God and he gives everything in return. That's called grace. See? We bring nothing to the table and he gives everything. And you know, most people sitting in churches across the country today do not understand that. They think I bring something to the table and God comes alongside of me and supplements the rest. I mean, I know I've done some bad things, but I've done a lot of good things. And when I get to heaven, he's going to look at all the good things and he's going to kind of look over the bad things. I kind of do good things and I try to be righteous and I get, you know, all these good things going in my life. And then I know God gives and he'll kind of supplement what I didn't do and then he'll, he'll make up for the rest. It's called religion. It's called works righteousness. It's called heresy. It's called people striving to be good enough for God. If you're striving to be good enough so that God will accept you, let me tell you, you'll never make it. Never. Forget about it. Don't even try because you can't do it. The only way people get right with God is to recognize the two points that we've just highlighted. And that is that I bring nothing to the table. I can't give anything to God that he thinks is impressive. All my righteousness like filthy rags. But God gives everything. Based on what? Based on his pure, unmerited grace. God gives it. I'm a recipient. That's called grace. That's what the Bible and Christian theology is all about. But your friends, most of them in church that you know, don't, they don't believe this. They don't understand it. I can prove it to you. Go home tonight, call one of your friends that went off to some church, some classic religious institution, and, and ask them, hey, hey pal, um, uh, are you going to go to heaven when you die? You ask them that one question. And listen carefully and discerning to their responses. They'll tell you things like this. I hope so. I'm trying. I'm working on it. I think I'm getting there. What does that mean? What does that reveal? That reveals a belief that I bring something to the table and God rewards me for that and makes up for the rest. Is that what grace is about? Absolutely not. You can't bring anything to the table that will impress God. The only reason people get accepted by a righteous and holy God is because they come to grips with the fact that I can give nothing to God that he'll be impressed with, and he will have to give me everything I need. That is grace. And that's what we need to realize. David, I think, started to get a skewed picture of that, and God had to correct him. You can't build anything for me. If I needed something from you, I certainly wouldn't ask you, and you know what? I don't have any needs after all. 
If I wanted you to do something, I'd ask. But you know what? I don't need anything. And you, by the way, you needed me from the very beginning. You were nothing. You can't even survive. Paul says you can't even breathe without me. So come to grips with the reality that I give you everything. And it's good for us as Christians to assess that in our own lives, isn't it? You didn't do anything to be where you are today. You didn't do anything to have that relationship that you're in. You didn't do anything to have that child that you're in. You think you had some part in it, and you think you contributed, but you didn't. Every single thing that comes out of your life that's good, it's a God thing. But I stood up for God at work this week. God was the motivating factor behind that. God was the one giving the strength. God was the one providing the words, God, 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 he did it all. That's grace. I've done nothing. I've done nothing but mess up my life. God is the one giving. That's called grace. We've got to admit he gives us everything. But it gets even more amazing than that. 2 Samuel chapter 7, bottom of verse number 9. We, ha we stopped halfway through, and that's because the verbs so far have all been in the past tense, right? Verse 8, what does it say? I took you, past tense, from the pasture. Look at verse number 9. I have been with you, past tense. Middle of verse 9, I've cut off all your enemies from before you. I've done, I've done, I've done, I've done for you. But look in the middle of verse number 9. He says, now, future tense verb, I will make your name great. He now points to the future, and he says even something even more phenomenal. David, I've given you everything, but I just want to tell you that I'm going to make you a promise. That's why this is called the Davidic covenant. It is a covenant, a promise by God to a person. And he says to David, I'm going to make you a promise. And I'm going to promise, look what it says in verse number 9, to make your name great. You're going to be like the name of the greatest men of the earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel. I'm going to plant them in it so that they can have a home of their own, no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. Circle that word. There's a huge irony there because how did our chapter start? Right? Dave wants to build a house for God. God, I really like to build a house for you. God says, you foolish man. You can't do anything for me. I've done everything for you. And by the way, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, a kingdom. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, verse 12, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one that will build a house for my name. You see, David's son Solomon was the one that God says, you know what, I don't need it, but I want you to be the one to build me a big temple, a big sanctuary for people to come and worship in. It's talking about Solomon here. And I will establish his, the, the throne of his kingdom, his dynasty. And then here's a huge word, forever. See, David is going to have a son who's going to sit on the throne, and he's going to have a dynasty that will endure forever. That's a huge, huge promise. Saul, remember, the first king of Israel, he had sons, but they never became king. David was chosen from another family, from the tribe of Judah, to be the king. And he says now, it's not going to be like Saul. I'm going to establish you and your children and your son is going to have a dynasty that lasts forever. Now, all you got to do is to look through history and realize it stopped, right? The line of David stopped. So how can he say that? We don't, I mean, we don't have some ruler in the world right now who's the, the son of David, do we? Well, that's why two of the four Gospels start with genealogies. Have you noticed that? Because it's very important to establish the fact that Jesus was the son of David. He was the ultimate son of David, that when he became the king 
and is enthroned now in heaven and one day will set up his kingdom on earth, he will 10 trillion years from now be seated on a throne, ruling and reigning in a place called the New Jerusalem, and he will be there as the king, the son of David, forever and ever. It has its immediate fulfillment in the life of Solomon who would build a temple, but ultimately the kingdom would endure forever through the person of Jesus Christ, who would be the son of David, and Jesus liked to call himself that, the son of David. What's the point there? This promise ultimately fulfilled for eternity because Jesus was the offspring ultimately of David. But back to now and here and now in verse 14, he says, I'm going to be his father and he'll be my son. Who's that? Solomon. I'm going to treat him like a father and you're going to be dead, but I'm going to govern him. I'm going to love him enough to correct him. When he's wrong, he says, I'll punish him with the rod of men, with the floggings inflicted by men. My love's never going to be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, David, and your kingdom will endure forever before me and your throne will be established forever. Wow, really? Me? You must really like me, God. You must be really impressed with all the things that I've done, right? No, 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 no. Because all we have to do is to think back in our study of First and Second Samuel and realize that when David should have been honest, he was busy lying. When he should have been bold, he was busy running. When he should have been doing what was right, he was busy doing what was wrong. And we're amazed that God would call him a man after his own heart because here he is doing all the dumb, boneheaded things that we do in our lives, and we say, this guy's not perfect, he's far from it. Then all you got to do is really be amazed because in your mind, thinking that God, the omniscient one of the universe who knows the words on David's mouth according to Psalm 139 before he speaks them, who knows his life according to Psalm 139 before he has even one day, before he was born, when he was knit in his mother's womb, God saw every single day of his life. If you believe that God is omniscient and you believe that God saw David's life when he made him this promise, you have to be amazed. This guy who God chooses to bless ends up becoming an adulterer and a murderer. We think we've seen him sin already. Man, wait till the next few chapters. We're going to see some big time sin. And all you got to say to yourself is that just doesn't seem right. Here's God pouring it on thick. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do all these things for you. Why? Because I'm gracious. Because you've done for me, no. You can't do anything for me. I've done everything for you, and you should be amazed at what I'm going to do next. We can't outgive God. You're listening to Focal Point in a series called Lessons on Grace from Pastor Mike Fabares. If you've missed any part of Pastor Mike's study through 2 Samuel, you can catch up online when you visit focalpointradio.org. You can also download the message on your favorite podcasting app or stream it using the Focal Point app. We're so glad to have you with us today and every day. Today, Pastor Mike brought a clarifying perspective on the unfairness of life to help you ponder the wonderful iniquity in your relationship with God. Our limited perspective can make it difficult to comprehend God's free gift of salvation. But the more we spend time studying the depths of Scripture, the clearer that picture becomes. That's our goal here at Focal Point. We're dedicated to providing you with a biblical foundation for life. This month, we're featuring a book that will help you understand God's grace in a deeper way. It's called All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. If you're struggling with your faith, or if you know someone who is, then this will be a helpful guide for understanding God's plan of salvation and our need for His grace. 
We'll send you a copy of All of Grace as our way of saying thanks for your support today. To make a donation, call 888-320-5885. You can also give online at focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. You might also consider joining the team of monthly supporters called Focal Point Partners. Now, these are people just like you who listen to the program and value reaching the world with the truth of God's Word. Our partners help us minister to others around the world by providing free access to all of Pastor Mike's sermons, devotionals, and videos, and helping cover our radio airtime costs. So sign up today when you go online to focalpointradio.org or when you call 888-320-5885. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again on Wednesday as we continue exploring the depths of God's grace right here on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.